It was, I'm going to show this guy that I deserve to be in the job that I was given. I didn't want other women to have to go through that. Not only the fact that I was Hispanic, but the fact that I was a woman and I was in technology. I mean, technology, even to this day in Silicon Valley, is a boys club. That's what the technology is. I mean, the struggle continues. And I will continue working on programs that make sure that there's more empowering to women, and specifically women in STEM. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. Each week, we take a deep dive into a singular lightbulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin. Nearly 20 years ago, I launched a public relations firm with the sole purpose of helping visionaries tell their stories to the world. Now, two decades later, I want to share those stories and more with you. This podcast takes you on a journey before it happened with the innovators who imagine and are still imagining the future. Ever since I was a child, I was curious about so many things. I spent hours in the garage, at science fairs, sifting through popular science, popular mechanics, and pretty much any journal I could get my hands on, exploring and discovering how things work. From transportation and AI to just about anything you can put in your home, office, or pocket. On this show, you'll hear from the innovators themselves as they tell their stories of how they brought those visions to life. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. Imagine going to a foreign country as part of a student exchange, only to have the program shut down after six months. Imagine deciding to stay anyway in a country where you barely speak the language and with so little money that you get by on eating half of a six-inch Subway sandwich every night for two years. Imagine earning both a bachelor's and a master's degree while graduating with honors and receiving just one job offer. Now imagine taking that job and using it as a springboard to an even better job. Then imagine using that better job as a springboard to co-founding your own tech startup. And imagine becoming a role model to thousands of women who have battled discrimination and inequality as they navigate their way through an industry dominated by men. Mercedes Soria lived each and every one of those stories, and she's my guest today. Mercedes is the co-founder and chief intelligence officer of the robotic security company Nightscope, but there is much more to her than any title or role can convey. And she happens to have one of the most inspirational stories I've ever come across. Mercedes was born in Ambato, Ecuador, a city about the size of Cleveland, Ohio, in the central valley of the Andes Mountains. She and her twin sister were raised by a single mother who was a school principal. Naturally, her mother put a heavy emphasis on education, something that would fuel Mercedes all her life. When I was growing up in Ecuador, what every woman 18 years or so wanted to do with their lives was to be a teller at a bank. That is really what, when you can say I made it. So my mother always looked forward. She always looked beyond that. So she always tried to make sure that we were educated and that we knew that there were other things we can do with our lives. She would buy magazines that talk about things that happen in the world. She would put those in our desk so we can read them and find out other professionals that we could do. So she was, she was very, very supportive and where we wanted to get with our life. So a bank teller was considered a very stable position. Oh, yeah. Especially if you're a woman, right? You're a woman. You can be a bank teller. That's like the best thing that you can hope for your life. To be honest, even my father, that's what he said. Yeah, you guys are going to graduate high school. So bank teller it is. I have connections that can get you to the bank. And then my mother went completely against that. And she said, no, that's not what they want to be. They want to be engineers. So the two of you together as twins, were you always together in elementary, all the way to high school and then in college, inseparable? We were inseparable. 
a lot of the times when we will do some mischief, she will say that I did it. I will say that she did it. And my mom didn't know who to complain to. We would cover for each other. We sometimes played some pranks on people because they didn't know who they were talking to. Like if I would be walking on the street and a friend walked by and I wasn't in the mood to say hello, the next time I see them, I'd be like, oh, you saw my sister. You didn't see me. <laughs> so it was uh, it was funny. So we used to play things for that. So what year did you go after college? We started college in 91. We did three years in uh, Ecuador. We had a bachelor's degree when we finished. Then we came here to the U.S. and we went to Tennessee, to Middle Tennessee State University. We did uh, two years there to get a bachelor's degree there. And then we decided to stay to get a master's degree in computer science. And my sister did computer engineering, which was, we had a lot of classes that we took together. So we used to do homework together. We used to write things that she didn't want to write. She wrote things that I didn't want to write. So we helped each other a lot during the college years, especially because we came from a country that we didn't really have any friends here. It was just the two of us. We came with a group of 20 people, but in the first year, all of them went back to Ecuador. So it was just the two of us. And the whole time we were in college, it was just she and I against the world. And it's been that way until she passed away last year. In 1991 was really when the internet and the whole digital revolution was happening. Was it also happening in Ecuador or coming to the United States? Was it a big opening for you? It was very different. In Ecuador, we have computers, but I was programming at Fortran and Pascal. And we had the computers that I don't know if you remember back then. I don't know when this happened in the U.S., but back in Ecuador, we used to have these 286s that you could push a button and it says turbo. So those were like the best computers that you could get in Ecuador. So when we came here and we started getting familiar with the internet and with web pages, as a matter of fact, my master's thesis for computer science was how to access the school databases via the web. So it was new at the time. It was something that hadn't been done. And we were doing that with a language that was called Perl which I think is still alive somewhere, but it's not something that is used mainstream anymore. It was a very different environment. Ecuador is not close at all to the level of development that the U.S. is in terms of computers and engineering, which was what we studied. Did you feel at a younger age before even going off to college that you were particularly gifted in STEM? Or did you even know what you were doing was STEM? I did not know it as STEM per se. That is not something that I learned in, in Ecuador. People don't talk about those things. The things that they talk about is that engineering is not for women. You should be looking for either the bank teller job or you should be looking for a seamstress job or you should be looking for other types of more women typical jobs. I learned about STEM when I came to MTSU. And they started talking about, hey, there's, I noticed that there were very few women in my classes, in my computer science classes, and all of my regular studies, like in physical education and psychology and biology, there were plenty of women, but I started noticing the lack of women, even in Ecuador, but there wasn't a name for it then. I learned the term STEM and what it means when I was here in college in the U.S. So let's go back to when you arrived to the U.S.? What was your first impressions? We came because of an agreement of Middle Tennessee State University with our university in Ecuador. The university arranged for us to have people who picked us up at the airport, people who took us to our dorm rooms, and then from then on, we were on our own. It was not easy at the beginning. Out of the 20 people that came, all of them left within the first six months. We came with a scholarship. So there was a lot of people that applied to come in Ecuador, but you had to pass a test and you had to know English. And my mother always thought that English was going to be something important for us in the future, whether because her family was in Toronto or because it would be important to be bilingual in Ecuador. When we were going to college in Ecuador, in the evening, she put us at a different college to study English. We passed all of the English tests and we had really good grades. And that's, I think, what helped us get that scholarship to come here to the U.S. 
So you're in college together with your sister. Other 18 people you came with are gone. What was your thought process of when 18 people left and two of you remained? Was it you just saw the, the gates open for you and it's like, okay, we have this tremendous opportunity or was there any form of fear? It was very stressful. I remember clearly the day when we got the call that said, guys, we know we told you that we were going to give you a scholarship for two years so you can get your degree there. But unfortunately, the deal fell through and the university is saying that they will only sponsor the first semester. And this is about two weeks after the semester was over. So they said, you have choices. You can stay there, but it will be on your own time. Or you can come back to the U.S. and we can try to find you jobs at the university because you already have a degree. But unfortunately, we can't sponsor you anymore. So I think that and the fact that the language barrier was significant. I studied three years of English in Ecuador, but it never really went beyond I am, you are, he, she is. So you come here to the U.S. and you turn on the radio and you have no idea what's happening in the radio. So we had a TV in our dorm room. So we're like, oh, let's watch some TV. You have no idea what they're saying on the TV. You have no clue. And then you go to class and we got to class and we sit there and the instructors are teaching and writing things on the whiteboard. And we're like, what? We had no idea what they were saying. We had no idea what they were covering. The only reason why we got very good GPA is because Every day we memorized, for every class that we took, we would stay up until two or three in the morning, memorize every single book that was covered that day. Because we never knew if there was a quiz next day. We never knew when midterms started. We never knew when the finals started. All we knew is that we had to study every single day that we were in school. That happened all the way until we got our engineering degree. It was a lot more relaxed when we got our master's, but The first two years that we were here were easily the hardest days in terms of school. So tell me a little bit more about the college courses, your undergraduate, the courses that you really liked. Did you have any mentors that give you guidance through this period of time? One of the things that we do in Ecuador that is very different than what happens here is the fact that when you study college in Ecuador, they only teach you what your emphasis is on. I already had all my engineering classes because the credits transferred to MTSU, but I had none of the first two years that people usually take in college, like your history and your English and your biology. I had none of those things. But our English teacher, she basically took my sister and I under her wing. She saw how bad her first essay was, and she would stay after class, and she would work with us to try to improve our English. And she would review our papers. She would give us pointers. She would say, hey, go study these parts of the book. She is the one that basically saved us. It was our English teacher. She saved us from being very, very miserable. She helped us and she would tell us, for example, hey, you know, you should go. I know that people are already taking registrations for next semester. We had no way of knowing that because we didn't know what people said. So she would say, you guys need to go register for the next semester because registration is open. She would say, hey, you know, you have to get a meal plan because you're going to need to eat. And the best thing that you can do is go and find food at the cafeteria. When the school dropped the scholarship, my sister and I basically had to share a meal plan at college. So they had the typical subway Pizza Hut, that type of stuff that you get at school's cafeterias. And my sister and I settled on Subway sandwiches because it was something that was easy to cut in half and it was easy to eat. She ate half of the six-inch sandwich and I ate the other half of the six-inch sandwich. It was tough. And my sister started to develop some headaches, which were caused by a lot of stress. I mean, we were. it, it was hard. It was really hard for us. We had to have a really serious conversation with our family the day when we found out that the school was dropping the program. The one that really supported us and said, do you want to stay? And if you want to stay, we'll find a way. That was our mother. She went to work in Ecuador. She found us a student loan. And we went to work here in the U.S. We found any job that we can do because when you're an international student, you can only work on your university. 
So I became a desk assistant from 11 p.m. until 7 a.m. in my dorm room. And then our first class was English at 8 o'clock in the morning the next day. So 11 to 7, you worked. I worked. And then class started. So when did you sleep? We didn't. One of the things that we did after the first six months that we did that, what we started doing with my sister was I would take the 11 to 3 a.m. and then wake the other one up to do the 3 a.m. to 7 a.m. So we will split the shift for the two of us. I can't tell you which one was harder. When you're trying to go to bed at 3 in the morning and you know that you only have three hours, or when you're waking up at 3 in the morning and you're like, oh, I, I just went to sleep. So I don't know which one was harder, but that's what we had to do to be able to stay here and cover our expenses. What was your core? What was really driving you? The determination to earn your degree? What was your conviction that you just got to go through the eye of the needle? Because that was a pretty tough time. It was the conviction that we would not fail. I will thank my mother to this day. She always said, if you set your mind to something, you will not fail. It will be difficult. I remember the day when we boarded the plane in Ecuador. She said, do whatever you have to do to achieve your goal. Even if you have to clean a toilet to be able to study, that's what you need to do. And that conviction that she had is how she raised us. And that was the conviction that we had, that we will do whatever it takes. There were days in which we were like, my sister, especially, she said she wanted to go back to Ecuador. What kind of college jobs did you do? What type? Desk assistant, the overnight desk assistant at the dorm room. We did that for two years. We also, in the summer, since there were no students in the dorms, what they would do would be paint. They would hire students to paint the dorms, to clean them. So we know how to paint. We know how to cut wood. And that was another job that I started. Like I became my resident assistant uh, my, in the second year. So I was responsible for everybody in my floor. I had to deal with things like some girls that had problems with their boyfriends hitting them or somebody who was in trouble because she thought she was pregnant. And I had to become that counselor for them for my dorm room floor. That was kind of like a big achievement being that the first two years all we did was desk assistant work and painting the dorm rooms in the summer. Because you, you, one thing that you got to realize is that we could only take jobs that require not talking to people because we didn't know the language. And there's not really that much activity that happens overnight in a dorm. So you don't have to speak English. And then there's not much activity that happens when you're painting. So you don't have to speak English. You can just paint. They give you a room and paint and you paint the room. That's the jobs that we took. So now you get out of college. And my understanding is you took a job with Gibson, the guitar company. Yeah. Is that correct? So that's interesting. Yes. I sent 100 resumes and my GPA was 3.973. That's how high my GPA was. And I had a master's degree in computer science. I thought I would have no issue finding a job. So I applied to 100 companies. I only got three calls, three interviews. And from those three interviews, only Gibson would sponsor me to stay in the U.S. and and work for them. At that time, I had studied artificial intelligence. I had studied operating systems. I had studied so many in-depth computer classes. And they hired me to do a website. But it was the only the only way to say it. There was no other way. So I decided I'll take the job. So that is something that I would always be glad to give some. They always sponsored me. They were always supportive. They promoted me like three times in a year. A lot of that happened because I kind of showed them what I could do. I would stick my nose where I wasn't called. Like, for example, I would see people that are still working on computers that had the black screen and the green letters and trying to do invoices that way and trying to do inventory that way. And I would just come to my IT administrator and I said, hey, you know, we can do all of this online. This is all on the web. There's products out there that allows us to do that. And they're like, yeah, we like the way we do things. We don't like change and it works. So we're we're fine. Don't worry about it. And then I was so persistent. until finally, I talked to the CEO And I was like, we can change this. You can be online. I can take you online. And he finally said, yes. I don't know how much people know about Gibson, but Kendrick Jeskowitz, the CEO of Gibson Musical Instruments, everybody was afraid of the guy. 
And I was like, I need to talk to this guy because he's the only one that's going to uh, let me do what I think I can do for this company. And they gave me a seven minutes on his schedule. I had seven minutes of time. And in those seven minutes, I had to convince him that we had to go to the web. And he said yes. And so now after that, it took me about two years and I put them online. The whole systems, the inventory system is online. The selling system is online. We created auction sites for people to buy guitars that were defective or that they were not going to be sold. We put all of the accounting online. All of it was online. It was pretty much the latest technology that at that point was uh, coming out in the market. How many years were you there? Three years, you said? I was there for four years. Four years. I love working at Gibson because everybody at that company either sings or plays an instrument. The only, the only person in the whole company, and I'm talking about IT as well, the only person who didn't sing or didn't play anything was me. And every Friday at 3 p.m., people start jamming and they stop working. So the music starts at 3 p.m. every Friday. So I have really fond memories of Gibson. The next stop for Mercedes was the global accounting firm Deloitte. A friend of hers encouraged her to apply, telling her that she had likely hit her selling at Gibson. In some ways, it was a step backward. She wouldn't be managing a team anymore, but she also recognized that Deloitte might offer her more opportunities for growth down the road. But on her first day, she was confronted with an unwelcome change in company culture. One of the things that I didn't like, that's when I started to feel the discrimination. I didn't feel any discrimination at Gibson, but at Deloitte, that's when I started to feel that because I got hired. Not only I was demoted from management to engineer to get that job at Deloitte, but when I had my first lunch, the first day you got to Deloitte, your first day at work, your manager takes you to lunch, which I went to lunch with my manager and he says, Hey, the only reason I hire you is because I like the car you drive. Can we ride in your car? And I was like, oh, really? So that's the only reason why you hire me? Yeah, your car is cool. I want to drive in it. So I was like, wow, that's not great. It's a side note. I have to know what kind of car that you had that was so admired. (laughs) It was a Toyota MR2 Spider. Cute, cute little car, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was it, it was a good looking car. They redesigned it in the year 2000 and they only produced them until 2004. But it was a good looking car. If you looked at it from behind and you weren't paying attention, you would have thought it was a Porsche because that was how close it was. So if you weren't paying attention, you would think it was one of those. But it was an MR2 Spider that had just been redesigned and everybody was just going nuts about it. And when I bought it, I didn't even know how to drive a stick shift. So I had to teach myself I would get up at five in the morning every morning because I knew nobody would be outside the doors of my apartment complex. I would get up five in the morning and I would start trying to drive that thing. And man, it would die every five minutes. It was awful because I didn't have anyone teaching me, but eventually I drove it. So uh, I kept that car for a very long, long time. It was a good car to me and I had long, fond memories of trying to drive it. It was at Deloitte where Mercedes got her first real exposure to mentorship. She had informally mentored some colleagues at Gibson, but at Deloitte, she started getting involved with programs within the company. She realized she herself needed a mentor, but she also discovered that she had wisdom that she could impart as well. One of the things that Deloitte had that was really good, and I know this is now a norm in every large company, but for me it was new, is they had the Women in Technology Group, which I immediately became a member of. Then they had the Diversity and Inclusion Board. And in those groups actually were what I consider my support groups. And I even funded the Hispanic Network because there was a lot of Hispanic people at Deloitte that didn't have a group to talk to. And if somebody from here is not going to know what a Latin person is telling them because it's just not the same culture, right? So we needed a group of people that we can feel like we are the same with. So I put a proposal together, I presented it to the CIO, I had to go through the approval processes, which in a long and a big company takes forever. And I was the founder of the Hispanic Network. It was me and one guy who started the group. And then by the time I left, we had over 200 people. And we will meet every so often and we will do events. And 
I personally mentored at least two dozen women in technology while I was there. So that was also important to me. So the groups were kind of your whole mentoring group, but then you mentored people within the group. Yes. For me, it was very important that it was a give and take. One of the things that I would tell you that happened to me was Deloitte had a mentoring program. So once I got there, I started studying on my own at Harvard Business School, principles of management and leadership and stuff like that. And I got a bunch of diplomas and and all that good stuff because I was preparing myself to apply for a manager role. And I knew how hard it was to get a manager role at Deloitte. So the one thing that someone recommended to me, and this was a guy, my manager at the time, he recommended to me that I become part of the mentorship program at Deloitte. So you fill out a bunch of forms, you ask for what you're looking for, and then there's a matching mechanism. And they matched me with a man, which I had no issue with, man or women, I was fine either way. But when I met with him first time, I came prepared and I told him, my goal is to become a manager here in the next year or so. I do all of these things to get prepared. I've studied at Harvard Business. I have mentored other women. I've been part of all these organizations. I have shown that I can create a team and maintain them and create events and create unity in groups. I have done all these things. So what do you suggest that I would do next to make sure that I can become a manager? And he flat out looked at me and he said, Mercedes, you've done anything that is possible. There's nothing I can give you that you haven't already done. So that was the only mentorship I got from the supposedly mentor that was matched to me at Deloitte. It's not a bad thing on Deloitte. I don't really know how the mentorship system works. My understanding is that I don't know if HR has a hand on it or not, but the guy basically said, you're doing everything that I would recommend. There's nothing I can add to what you're already doing. The one thing that he did say was, why don't you just go ahead and apply for a manager job? I'm pretty sure you're going to get it. And I did. So when you were at Deloitte, you had the mentor program, you're involved in the Hispanic and kind of mentoring other people. Do you think that was where you got some of your roots and the foundation of what you continue to do when it comes to mentorship and leading women? Did it start there? Yeah, I didn't want other women to have to go through what I went through. There was a specific person who told me when I did get promoted to manager, there were four managers at my same level when I got promoted. I think it was 30 of us who applied for the four jobs that there were. And I get one of them and this guy got one of them. He was a white male who specifically came to me and told me, Mercedes, the only reason why you were promoted to manager is because you're a female. You are in technology and you're a minority. Otherwise, you're not qualified. And I was like, what? He was like, I, on the other hand, have worked my whole life. I'm a male and I'm from the U.S. And I still had to go through the same interviews that you had to go through. And they were hard on me, but on you, everybody was so easy. I went home and I cried, but then I decided that I'm going to show this guy. It wasn't, I'm going to show Deloitte. It was, I'm going to show this guy that I deserve to be in the job that I was given. And I didn't want other women to have to go through that. Not only the fact that I was Hispanic, but the fact that I was a woman and I was in technology. I mean, technology, even to this day in Silicon Valley, is a boys club. That's what technology is. I mean, the struggle continues. And I will continue working on programs that make sure that there's more empowering to women, and specifically women in STEM. While Mercedes was at Deloitte, she would occasionally travel to Atlanta to meet with clients. During one of her visits, she met an entrepreneur named William Santana Lee, who was in the early stages of launching an AI-powered robotic security company called Nightscope. The two fell in love and eventually married, but their meeting also represented a career pivot for Mercedes. William and his business partner had hardware backgrounds and they needed a software expert. All of a sudden, Mercedes had a new husband and a new career as co-founder and executive of a tech startup. They tried to launch the company from Indianapolis, but eventually decided to head west to Silicon Valley. Let's talk about the Silicon Valley and your first impressions when you arrived, because you mentioned it's kind of a boys club, and I can validate that myself. In the market, in general, in STEM-related career, only 28% women are in these positions. 
when you came to Silicon Valley, it probably wasn't even 28%. Oh, no, I'm sure it wasn't. No, we went to a accelerator that was called Plug and Play. So they hold, I think, 350 companies in, in that one building. I'm telling you, the number of women, it was less than 10%. And if there were some women, they were not the technologists. They were the marketing people for the startup. There were even fewer CEOs of startups, which is a problem to this day. And you get reminded every day, if you're a woman, especially in technology, in Silicon Valley, you have to prove your worth. It's assumed, as soon as you come in, it's assumed that you don't know anything. You cannot possibly be an engineer. There's no way. So we had to work twice as hard to convince people that, hey, we do know what we're talking about. We do know what we're doing. And the thing that I've always done is I don't talk. I just show you. And that's the way I live my life. Let's talk about Nightscope just a little bit because it's an instrumental part of your career. It is a company that is really disruptive, creating a whole new approach to security, right? And one of the things that you shared, I know when you won the Abbey Award, you held up a sign. It was 2017 and you won this award. Tell us a little bit about that award that you received as a, a woman in technology. You've been in the industry for a while now and you win this award for basically your life achievement. Can you talk about a little bit about that and what that felt like? So the email ended up in my inbox about Grace Hopper and you should attend and here's the link to register. And by the way, we award women technologists for their efforts. And if you're interested, apply. So I saw that. I was like, oh, hmm, maybe I should apply. I'm not the person who came up with the idea of creating a robot. I don't have a robotics background. That's not where I should be applying. But what I did feel strongly that I have a very good case was in women leadership. Because of all the women that I had mentored. So I applied for that award. And then I applied and I forgot about it. Then one day I'm sitting at the uh, the Nightscope in 2017. I'm at work and I get this phone call from a number that I didn't know. And I picked it up and I said, hi, this is Mercedes. And she said, hi, from Anita B. We hold the Grace Copper Celebration. And I wanted to let you know that you have won the Leadership Award for 2017. I'm like, oh, great. That's awesome. (laughs) I'm like, that's great. And then she says, there's a cash money of $7,000. And I was like, what? She said, yeah, you just won that. I'm like, oh, okay. So what what happens next? And then she said, there's a conference, which is the Grace Copper Celebration, where 25% women from around the world, from like 191 countries, come to celebrate women in computing. So you will be given your award at that celebration. And I'm like, great. I've never been to it. And they're like, you've never been to it? I'm like, no, I'm sorry. I have never been to it. And she said, oh, it would be great if you weren't. It would be wonderful. You'd do great. And then the day before when we practiced all of our acceptance speeches, I'm like, wow, this room is pretty big. And then I get to the podium and I was like, wow, it's big. So they said three things that you need to know for this speech. You have to write a speech. I said, okay, I can do that. And then you have to answer a question, which is, what does my technology do? And then there's going to be about 18,000 people here tomorrow. Then I said, excuse me? <laughs> she said, yeah, you will be a keynote speaker for the 18,000 women. I'm like, I'm glad I didn't know that sooner because I would have been freaking out for a long time. So what I showed in the card was my technology helps save people's lives. And that's how I feel that eventually we will be saving people's lives. When, when America becomes the safest place in the, in the world because you have robots everywhere, which is my goal, they will be as ubiquitous as your neuro cars that are going around these days without a driver. That's what I see for robots. They will be in every corporate campus, in every hospital, in every airport, everywhere. So that was the goal, and that's what I had. And after my speech, there were a lot of women Keep in mind, I've never been to the conference, so I didn't know how people would react to me. There were so many women that came to me after my speech. They were like, you impressed us so much. Can you please be my mentor? Do you have a book about your life? I would like to read it. Uh, And I'm so impressed by what you're doing. Keep up what you're doing. Keep inspiring women. And that prompted me to even get renewed interest on even mentoring more women. 
because I felt the responsibility that that award gave me to keep doing more of what I was already doing. That was like one of the top five biggest things I've ever done, I think, so far in my life. Let's talk about the other four. The other four is I got married to the man I love. The other one is I stayed in the U.S. If I hadn't stayed, I would have never become what I am today. And then the fourth one would be leaving Ecuador. Leaving Ecuador was hard, but I body did that. And now the fifth one is I was asked to be a speaker for the U.S. Department of State. So what I do is before the pandemic, I speak on the subjects of technology, the technology that Nightscope uses, AI and machine learning, and sometimes even robotics to men and women around the world. So basically embassies around the world reach out to the Department of State and they say, hey, we have this event that is focused either on technology or women in STEM or entrepreneurship. Those are my topics per se. Uh, We would like a speaker. Can you send someone? So I went to Canada and Mexico before the pandemic hit. And now I've been doing those speeches remotely and Zoom. I do radio interviews in other countries. I just did one actually in Ecuador that the embassy of the United States in Ecuador reached out to me to do a speech on women in technology and women in STEM. They had a program. It looks like in Ecuador. I don't go very often. But finally, they're catching up to women in STEM is something that we have to pay attention to. That's kind of when I get called. So how did they find you? Did you apply or did they approach you, the Department of State? Another interesting thing that happened when I, this is going to be a funny one. So I had a friend that I stayed at when we first came to Silicon Valley, right? We were staying at a house next to her. Are you familiar with the Real Housewives show? Oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> my late night selfish TV. <laughs> I know, all weekend, exactly. Uh, it's like, my life her. really doesn't suck. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So she comes to me one day and she says, Mercedes, I've been invited to this casting event for Ria Housewives of Silicon Valley. And I'm like, what? She said, and I really don't want to go along. Can you please come with me? I'm like, sure, why not? So I went there. And uh, the show never ended up happening. I don't, I don't know what happened. They asked me for interviews. I did interviews. And then I don't know what happened with that. But I did meet one woman who told me, Mercedes, I think after hearing your story, because they wanted my story on tape. So after hearing your story, I think you'd be really good for a program that the Department of State does. I'm like, what is it called? She said it's called Tech Women. And what they do is they bring women who want to start their own companies and typically in STEM from all around the world, from Asia, from Africa, from the Middle East. And then women here in Silicon Valley mentor them to get their companies started. And if it's something that you're interested, I think you would be really good at it. And I said, okay, I'll look into it. And then she put me in touch with someone at the Tech Women program. I went through what they said is a rigorous interview process. They selected me as one of the women who could do that. So I've been doing that for about four years now. I've mentored women from Palestine, women from Lebanon, women from Tunisia, and women from Nigeria. Amazing. Then somehow, someone from Take Women had told the State Department that I could be a really good speaker for the United States. And they called me. So that was another phone call that I wasn't expecting. So one day I'm at work and I get this call, a number that I didn't know. So I'm like, okay, I'll pick up. And she said, hi, I was given your name by someone at the Tech Women Initiative for the State Department as somebody who can be a good speaker for the State Department. Are you interested? And I was like, okay, sure. What does it entail? And she said, representing the the United States State Department, around the world and topics in your case would be topics around women in STEM, technology and entrepreneurship. And I was like, yeah, sure. I mean, if you come from where I come from, from Ecuador and the United States asks you to speak for them, you don't ask why or how or when, you just say yes. So I was like, I will do anything for the United States. I have received so much from this country. I will do anything for you. So sign me up, I will do it. Whatever it is, the answer is yes. You went from 18,000 people to now speaking to the world. 
Kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in, in a sense, right? In a sense, yeah, you're right. Let's talk about the 50-50 women on boards and how that's amplifying your career. And I know that it's a big problem that there's not, just not enough equality on boards. So to talk a little bit about that. Yes. So there's this organization called 5050 Women on Boards. And uh, what has been in my head for probably the best of the last four years is what is my next step? I'm always looking at what my next step will be. So I decided boards are something that are important to me. And then I met the woman who leads this effort. Her name is Betsy. And she shared with me the statistics that they keep track of. The organization's goal is to increase the number of women being represented in companies and the companies in the Russell 3000 index. She has been working on this in this project for about 10 years. And it used to be called the 2020 Women on Boards because she thought that by 2020, of course, we're going to have gender equality on companies' boards. Why would it take longer than that? The project was called 2020. Well, we get to 2020 and we still have problems. We only have 22% of board members and those Russell 3000 companies being women. And then the other statistic that really hit home for me was out of those women, only 5% are women of color. So she invited me to participate and to lead the San Francisco chapter. And I said, yeah, absolutely. We need to fix this. This is a problem. So now let's talk about Solve24, which is a youth accelerator. Solve24. So that came out of Tech Women. That was one of the companies that I had mentored. And the women that came here decided that we, the best thing that they could do, when you come here, you have to have a project. And that project is your quote-unquote startup. And you have to present it to the Department of State. And the Department of State funds the top five projects that they think have the best likelihood of being successful. So we were number two that year. I wanted to win it, but we got second. So that's another one that bothers me. But we get second place. And then what we do is in the summer, the women over there, they hold events, kind of like hackathons and workshops to teach the kids, especially girls, about technology. They code, they do mobile apps, or they do little robot, robotic efforts. Depending on the year, they do different things. And that is basically the startup that we started for them. And it's been successful. We're in our, I think we're in our third or fourth year by now. And everybody that has come to the event has really enjoyed it. And we're changing lives. Girls that might not have known what technology is or that might not have had the self-confidence to decide that they want to be in technology, we're changing their lives. And that's what matters to me. So is that K through 12? Yes. Have you seen any any of the Software 24 youth advance pursuing college in, in STEM and careers that you've worked with? Yes, we have. We have. Yes. The focus is really between nine years old and 15 years old. That's the sweet spot. So we've only had a couple that made it to college yet. The others are too young yet. But yeah, that's the whole goal. And then eventually my personal goal is that those kids that received that training and they came to the Soft 24 summer workshop, not only got to college and get a computer science degree, but they become the women that come to the U.S. to be trained by tech women. And that would be a full circle thing to me. Because all the efforts that I've been working on for the past years would come full circle if we're able to get women from that young age to become the leaders and the startup entrepreneurs in technology. What do you think needs to be done to encourage more women to enter STEM careers? Because I, I know when I was growing up, I was discouraged. <laughs> you know, I was oftentimes the only girl in the math or advanced science class. And it was, you know, kind of frowned upon. And now I'm so happy to hear about the programs like Girls Who Code and Black Girls Who Code and different groups like that. Plus now your group, the Solve 24, are really working with kids the same way once upon a time you would have gone to Girl Scouts, right? Yeah. And this is like the next level up. So what needs to happen just to encourage more? Is it programs like this or people like you mentoring? Like what needs to be done? I think it needs to be two things. Actually, both of them are, are relevant. Number one, by mentoring women who can make something happen in their own countries, which is what we do with tech women, I think it's very important 
to mentor them so they can go mentor the kids or the women in their communities. But also the, the massive problem that we get into, if we get someone to even graduate from college and get a, there's actually a lot of more women now that graduate in college with computer science degree. I think we're like 36%. So that's a big number. 36% of the computer science graduates are women, which is great. But the problem is, and I saw this problem when I was at Deloitte and uh, definitely at Gibson, is the fact that, okay, I'm a woman, I'm Latin too. Does anybody at the leadership level in this company look like me or has the experience of life kind of like mine? And if I see all white men in their 50s and they're leading the company, number one, why would they care about me? They don't even know I exist. Number two, I don't look like them, so I really don't have a chance. Why would they hire me as the only woman to be in a job that is that high? Nobody looks like me. So I think it's too proud. Number one, educate them when they're young. Educate them since they're little, just like my mother did. You can be whatever you want to be. There's no barriers for you. You can achieve whatever you want. And if that is technology, yes, you will do it. And even if you are the only woman in that class, just go with it. So a lot more encouragement I think is needed. And that starts at home. And then what would be ideal is more women kind of doing the job that I'm doing, which is telling our stories, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. So kids and women in positions that have the ability to get to either a board position or sometimes engineers. I mean, I mentored 12 engineers at Deloitte and none of us thought that they would get to a management position and now they're getting to management positions. And I still talk to some of those and that is success. And why do you think technology, or maybe you have some facts, but is technology more intimidating in, in medicine and other technical fields? So you know, we have, we see breakthroughs with women in, in space and in aerospace, but yet you look at certain countries and you might have one woman pilot. Do you think technology in general or is it Silicon Valley? I think technology in general is. The difference that I have found in Silicon Valley is that people are more upfront about it, if that makes sense. And it's not just the fact that you're a woman, it's the fact that you didn't go drinking with the guys at the startup who play hard and work hard. So if you're not willing to work hard, play hard, and go drinking until three in the morning, then you're not part of the team. So you can't do that. So there's behavior like that. It's generally, I don't want to be biased, but generally male-related. And then when we, as women, don't participate in things like that, they will be like, oh, yeah, you're not part of the team. And they exclude you from things that might be happening. So Silicon Valley is a boys' club. I've been here for now since 2013. It's 2021. It's almost 10 years. And the boys club is still the boys club. It hasn't changed. I've seen more women come in, more women starting companies. As a part chief, I now know a lot of more women who are in companies in C-level positions, which is great. We're improving. But it is a boys club and it will be until we change it, in my view, one person at a time. Your story is amazing. So thank you for sharing this with us because I think that we can change and mentor people just telling your story, right? Your mother is mentoring and then you meet your and your sister are very close and then you start mentoring people in these these mentoring groups and then it just evolves, right? It's just this, you created this kind of global ecosystem. Do you think that you're slaying dragons or, or being a warrior in any sense? Do you feel like you're a warrior in a sense of being you know, a positive warrior? in a voice or is it something else? How would you describe it? I feel an actual responsibility to change things. I feel that I wouldn't want any woman to go through some of the stuff that I went through and that I still go through. I mean, there's still people who say, I don't know, I'll tell you what happens to Nightscope and I've still heard it. She's the CIO just because she's married to the to the CEO. And you're like, ah, no. So I have to go to the length of changing my last name and not using my married last name, only using my single last name at work. Because otherwise, like, yeah, yeah, she's, she, she, she's in it just because she's the wife of the CEO. It's just like, and you find that every day and it's still there. And it bothers 
the hell out of me, but you just have to tell yourself that it doesn't matter and you continue to work. And do you think that you are still kind of leading this movement along with your sister, even though she's passed? I think because she's passed, I have a renewed energy on trying to do that. She was my best fan. I don't like to boast. So when I would get a speaking engagement or when I was women of influence in Silicon Valley or whatever, whatever the thing was, I put pictures of my dog on Facebook. But she would put in Facebook, she would be the person who says, hey, guys, check it out. My sister just spoke at this event and she did great. And here's the video. And she just won this. And she, she would be the one doing all of that. And I feel that if I stop after she's there, because she's not here, I feel like she wouldn't want that. Even though I'm not going to do what she used to do, which is tell the whole world about everything I've done. That was Mercedes Soria. If you're not already inspired by her incredible story, I'm going to leave you with this. In addition to all the things she's done throughout her career, Mercedes is also a competitive ballroom dancer. She and her sister took dance classes for fun while they lived in Nashville and eventually started entering competitions. Knowing what we know about Mercedes and her tenacity, it's no surprise that she eventually became one of the best in the world. In 2008, she finished in the top 10 of the World Ballroom Championship. But true to form, she wasn't satisfied. To this day, Mercedes remains disappointed. She didn't come in first. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Jack Buer. Our show coordinator is Deanna Morency, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab. 